Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Invite you to turn with me in your in your Bibles to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 4. Follow along with me as we look to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood, speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. Somebody told me some interesting information in the earlier service. Do you know where we're getting our first dose of vaccinations in Canada from? What country? They told me. I haven't backed up the stats, so Stan could be wrong, but this is what that was told. From Belgium. The first batch coming from the second is from Switzerland, apparently. Now, speaking of Belgium, why is that maybe important? So my first illustration this morning comes from Belgium. If you were to go back to the 14th century, the region we now call Belgium, there was a duke by the name of Reynold III. Everybody say Reynold III. Big guy, isn't he? Uh, Bev would like to date him. Um, so he's nicknamed Crassus, and Crassus means fat. Surprise. Fat he was. He really liked to eat. He had an eating problem. In the course of time, there was a violent quarrel between Reynold and his younger brother Edward, which resulted in Edward leading a revolt against Reynold. Edward took over the throne. Instead of killing killing Reynold, he took Reynold prisoner, took him back to Newkirk Castle, where he made a special room. He built a room around Reynold III. And he promised his brother, you can regain your title and property as soon as you are able to leave this room. True story. Now, normal-sized person wouldn't have a problem. There were several windows in the room. They were normal-sized windows. None of them were barred, and there was a door, and the door was not locked. A normal-sized person could go through them. Problem was Reynolds' size. In order to leave the room, he would have to lose weight. Edward, his younger brother, knew his older brother's weakness, and he made sure that daily trays of delicious food were delivered to his cell Every day. So instead of dieting at his way out of prison, Reynolds grew fatter and fatter 
And when Edward, when people would accuse Edward of his cruelty, he would readily reply, my brother is not a prisoner. He may leave when he wills. Reynold would stay in that room 10 years. And he wasn't released until after Edward died in a battle. And then they came and they broke him out of the room. But he would die one, within one year of breaking out because his health was so shot. Because of his appetites. The Apostle Paul, he is making reference to the problem of our appetites. He's warning the Christians of his day, and the warning echoes into today, December 13th, 2020. He's echoing the same promise, and it's this. Beware of your appetites. Don't die a prisoner of your appetites. That's a good word, isn't it? Don't die a prisoner of your appetites. Ephesians 4, 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life God of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Note how he finishes that. He says, that's not who you are. We can say that. That's not who you are in Christ today. You're not that. What the world has offered you, what the prison that this world has tried to say that this is who you are, is not who you are. You're a child of God. Finish this for me. Whom Christ has set free is free indeed. If Jesus has come into your life and you've embraced him as Lord and Savior, he's your Lord, your God then he has also simultaneously freed you from every bondage of this world. You're not a prisoner. If you're looking at bars, it's not because they're holding you in. It's because you've chosen not to leave. Do not die to your appetites. That's the call. Do not die to your appetites. So what was this city of Ephesus, the book of Ephesus we just read from. What is the city that Paul was addressing? Because this was a very interesting city. Well, today, Ephesus is no longer called Ephesus. Modern Ephesus is a very thriving metropolis city. It's not called Ephesus, but Lori and I, a few years ago, we visited the sites, the ruins of the ancient Ephesus. It was a port city. It was referred to the treasure house of Asia, but it wasn't a very nice city 2,000 years ago. It was home to the temple of Diana, Artemis, the god of fertility. Her structure, her picture, temple could accommodate 24,000 people. It was considered in that day one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Because Artemis, the goddess of fertility, the, uh, the worship there included burning of incense, Music, an atmosphere of frenzy, arousing, emotional, shameless, sensual behavior. Lori and I did visit. When you go to the city, they will take you, the ruins of the city, they will take you to row upon row, street upon street, where you duck into these bathhouses. I was going to show some of the pictures of the bathhouse that we took, 
And you have to add a little story behind that. When I was taking the picture, Lori virtually tackled me and says, don't you take a picture of those dirty pictures. They were all over the walls, but you really had to like go close to try to figure it out because they were so worn over 2,000 years. So I didn't show you the pictures we took. But their bathhouses were a picture of the day of the sensuality of sexual exploitation. Feels good, do it. And all kinds of sexual degradation involved in the shameless city of Ephesus. It truly was the sin city of the day. Not only was it a city of great sexual promiscuousness, the tradition of Ephesus is that if you were a criminal, the city would provide you asylum. You could, if you made it to Ephesus, you were not going to necessarily be held accountable to your deeds. So criminals from all over, thieves, murderers, everything, came to Ephesus. It was a nasty place to live in many regards. Popular city because of that, but truly immoral. So imagine being a follower of Jesus living in this city. A follower of Jesus, and this is where Paul, it's because of this, the followers of Jesus were sending Paul, and they were saying, the reason we are falling back into sin is because look at what we have been given. Look at the situation. We have no choice. We are a prisoner of our appetites. We're a prisoner of our appetites. And Paul writes the letter of Ephesus, and he says it's not true. Paul, as a matter of fact, would stay and live among them for two years. And the first Bible college mentioned from the Apostle Paul was Ephesus. He started a school Bible college because he was saying, you do not have to succumb to your environment around you. Isn't that a good word for today again? You do not have to be. We are in the world, but we are not what? We're not of the world, but we have been called for the world. We're not of this world. The appetites are not my appetite. I might be tempted, but I'm not a prisoner to that. And Paul writes this to the Ephesus, no matter what background. And the people, they were kept saying this. They, questions would arise. How can Christians avoid being dragged back? I mean, you come out of this, but you go back into it. You come out of it, you go back into it. You're Christian today and, and, and ungodly tomorrow, and Christian tomorrow and ungodly the next day. And on it goes. And they were saying, but that's the way life spins. And Paul is saying, No. You don't have to be in prison to your appetites. Here were some of the things they were saying. Number one, what's the use of trying? What's the use of trying? Several years ago, MTV did a special series on our entertainment industry. And the entertainment industry from Hollywood and how they viewed the spiritual. You know the Bible has these seven deadly sins. Seven deadly sins, if you don't know what they are, the pride, lust, greed, envy, gluttony, anger, sloth. Seven deadly sins. So the entertainment industry was speaking into their thoughts about the seven deadly sins. It was an interview in MTV. Various actors, singers were weighing in. Some were saying, I don't think pride is a sin. I think some idiot made that up. Another one said, greed is good. A singer from a band declared, lust is what I live for. One of them, at the end of the interview, kind of summed up what they all thought and said, we are dealing with compulsions. The seven deadly sins are not evil acts, but rather universal human compulsions that can be troubling and yet highly enjoyable. 
In other words, we accept the cage of our compulsions and we will live there. By contrast, Paul says, follow fellow brothers and sisters in the faith. Don't buy into Jesus has promised you to be free from those very things. The second thing the people in the day of Ephesus were saying, they were saying, well, maybe we just need to social distance. <laughs> There's, wow, we're familiar with that, aren't we? We just need to social distance. And social distancing will fix this. And so you will escape the prison of the sin around you by distancing. And so they went to monasteries. They had convents. They had caves. And off they, they could just get out from Sin City. If they could get out from that environment, they could get away from those people and the temptations that were there. But think about how well that worked back in the Middle Ages. Paul even said in 1 Corinthians 5, he said that that's, it won't work. It won't work because you go into that cave, you'll take the very sin you're running from into it with you. It won't work. What Paul does tell us to do is found in Ephesians 4.22. He says, here's what you need to do. You need to put off your old self. You, you put off. People say, well, God, he didn't take it from me. Oh, yes, he did. But you now put it off. You partner with him. He's given you freedom to choose. Put off the old self, which belongs to your formal, former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Don't live by your appetites, is what he's saying. Don't live by your appetites. It's not enough, though, he says, just to stop doing the bad. He takes it one step further. You need to put on the good. Let me use an illustration. Let's say you're in the summertime, you're in your garden or someone else's garden, and you are pulling out weeds and you're planting and you're just like into it. And days and through sweating and everything else, I mean, you are dirt from head to toe. What do you do? Well, you don't go into the house, you're going to get in trouble if you're a man and if you're a wife, you're going to have to clean up. Well, I don't know how that works in your home, but you got to take those clothes off before you get very far into the place. You got to strip, you got to leave them there. Don't bring them into the home and you better shower, you better clean up. But wouldn't it be a mistake as half, having hopped out of the shower, dried off, you go running out into the street without doing one more thing? You can't run around butt naked. It's called, you have to put something back on. Put on the new. So here's the thing. Oftentimes we keep saying, I'm resisting that. I'm, I'm stopping that. I'm resisting it. But that's only part of the equation. You will not be complete until you put on the new self. You've got to put, he's got something to put on. So not only do you resist, but you take. And Paul talks about this. He talks about it quite extensively, even in Ephesians. He says where we are to, uh, regarding Ephesians, he said, chapter 4, verse 24, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians 4, verse 25. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, that put off falsehood, lying, deceitfulness, each one must, here's what we put on, speak the truth with your neighbor. Put it on. He goes, verse 26. Be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down in your anger. Okay, here it is again. Take off the right to sin by being angry against others. Take it off. It's not your right. What are you to do? Get an alarm clock. The alarm clock is every day when the sun goes down, let your alarm clock go off and let it tweak your mind. Make sure you don't let the sun go down while you still have unforgiveness with someone. Take off 
your right to be angry, put on that you will reconcile. He continues down, verse 28. Let no thief, let the thieves no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone else. Stop stealing. <laughs> Stop taking what's not yours. Put that off. What are you to do? What do you put on? Get a job. Work. You see, thieves were rolling into the city of Ephesus. It was their life. And they were rolling in. What were they doing? They were sponging. They were taken from what others have worked and they were, others were supporting them. And Paul was saying, now you as Christians, start working. Get the broom and start sweeping your, your street. Start serving. Start baking. Start preparing. Start helping someone. You get a job. So instead of people having to share their resources with you, you now make it so that you can share your resources with others. That's what Paul's saying. So take off the advantage of taking and put on that you can now start giving, that you can share because they are helped and you can make a difference if you work. Otherwise, you simply are a draw from others who are working. Good words, good words. As Paul talks of that day. And then verse 29, he says, verse 29 to 32. No corrupt talk come from your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, clamor, slander, put away, there's that, put it off along with all malice. Put all that off. What do you put on? He continues. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. He gave us that example. Take off corrupt talk, vulgar words, curse words, profanity, nasty, obscene statements. That's not you anymore, he said. How's that going with us, with us all here? How's that going with our language? Because it's all around us. We're like, we're in... Ephesus. But he says, put on words that build up. Put on words that encourage and bless. Put that on. Be intentional in how you speak. Wow. Chapter 2, verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. We're part of a family now. So Paul says, listen, you are not just breaking out of prison. You're part of a great family. A great family. It's called the church. Not brick and mortar. Not a denominational stripe. It's followers of Jesus. And they are comprised of every different language. Every different skin color. Every different age. Every different, well, there's only two different genders. They are comprised of all those things so that together we are family. We're family. You know, I put together, I was thinking about this, six reasons why we need the church family. Number one, a church family identifies you as a genuine believer. I'm not simply a body of isolated silo of my own. I need others to express who I am. When we come together, when there's family, from different backgrounds and all the things we just mentioned, it is a powerful witness of the power of Christ to the world around us because we're family. Secondly, a church family moves out of 
self-centered isolation. Church family becomes part of small group, fellowship group. Listen, Romans 8, 38 tells us that neither height nor depth nor angels, principalities, things present, things to come, nor any other creature can separate us from the love of God. Going to Zoom, going to live stream, going to person, going to small groups, going to phone calls, FaceTime, Instagram, whatever it is, and connecting can't stop us. You know, they tried to stop the early church 2,000 years ago. The time that this was taking place, they tried to stop. Rome tried to stop the church. And they tried to stop. They shut down the church in the city of Jerusalem, the greater Jerusalem. I guess it would have been the GJA, greater Jerusalem area. Got shut down, locked into gray zone. Worse than that, persecuted, persecuted. So what'd they do? They met outside those buildings. And they were the church. And history tells us, you pick it up, chapter 7, chapter 8 of the book of Acts, and then read what happens after. The church multiplied. That's what God wants to do, God's plan. And so the key coming back is, is that a church family is not self-centered in isolation. God expects us to be part of others. 1 John three sixteen it says this, Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives. If you didn't know what it was, how would you finish that? You would think maybe we ought to lay our lives down for Jesus. Let me do it again. Jesus laid his lives down for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for Jesus. It doesn't say it, actually. Jesus laid his, lives down, his life down for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for each other. He laid it down for me and you. Now, you and I lay it down for each other. We no longer about us. Number three, a church family helps you to develop spiritual muscle. You don't develop spiritual muscle by watching. You know, they call it couch potatoes, right? You watch or get in the game and get involved. That's where spiritual muscle is grown. Fifty times in the New Testament, the phrase one another is used because the whole purpose is we are about one another. Determine who you are doing this with. Isolation breeds deceitfulness. We need relationship. We can still do that. Number four, the body of Christ needs you. God has a purpose and plan for your life. I like to use the phrase, we all got assignments. I got an assignment. You have an assignment. We all have assignments. If you wonder what your assignment is, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It tells how you were uniquely gifted for some assignments. Find out what they are. Romans chapter 12 tells us some of the giftings. 1 Peter chapter 4 tells some of the giftings. And Ephesians 4 tells some of the unique abilities he's given you that is unique to you so that you might fulfill your assignment. We all have assignments. We need one another. Number five, you will share in God's mission to the world. Count it a privilege to serve others. Sometimes we think it's a burden that we must bear. And I have to remind myself at times of this. Sometimes when you're in the service industry, you feel taken advantage of. But remind yourself, it is a privilege to serve someone else. We were served by a king, a great king, who gave us the ultimate service. 
So what a joy it is to assist, to come alongside, to serve someone else. There's something powerful. The body of Christ needs us, and we, it's a privilege to be part of his mission. It's a privilege to be his hands, his feet, his mouth. What a privilege to represent him. There's no greater privilege ever afforded a human than to represent our God. Isn't that amazing? And six, a church family will help keep you from backsliding. None of us are immune to temptation. Paul was trying to get that across to the Ephesians. You're not immune to temptation. Given the right situation, you and I, all of us, are capable of sinning. Hebrews 3.13, encourage one another daily. So look for opportunities every day. Who can I encourage? Every day, not once a week, not every month, not when you see them at Christmas, not, when you, not just on their birthday. <laughs> look for daily opportunities to encourage someone. Have that mindset, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You know, sin is an amazing way to be deceitful if no one's speaking into my life. I have a way of talking myself out of things or into things that I shouldn't be. But if someone's in my life, then the chances of that dramatically decreases because we are ironing, iron sharpening iron. We're holding each other to the, our toes to the line. James 5, 19, if you know people who have wandered off from God's truth, write them off. Is that what it says? <laughs> if you know people who've wandered from the truth, don't write them off. Go after them and get them back. Hmm. Hmm. Go after them. I was thinking about this this past week. I was thinking about, you know, this has been a week of announcements, lockdown, everything else. And I was thinking about, you know, remaining anonymous. One of the hardest things we as the leadership here at the church, and myself, certainly, when we went to lockdown last March and April, everything changed, was a number of people we didn't know who they were. They occasionally visited there were those that we might have had a name, but we didn't know anything about them. They, we just didn't know them. And we would get together in staff and leadership, and we'd say, do you know this person? Do you know this? And it grieved us how many we don't know. And so I composed something this past week. I composed something, and I just called it, How to Remain Anonymous. How to Remain Anonymous as a Christian. Let me give you some tips. You know, how to remain anonymous. Now, this, obviously, you can't do all this during this immediate gray zone lockdown. But as a church, basically speaking, how to remain anonymous. Well, if you want to remain anonymous, don't attend church weekly. Just attend once in a while. If you want to remain anonymous and nobody knowing who you are, occasionally attend. And when you do attend, here's, here's the best thing. If you want to remain anonymous, make sure you come maybe just a little bit late. And leave very promptly or a little bit early. Because if you don't, somebody's liable to talk to you and get your name. So if you want to remain anonymous, you need to do that. If you want to remain anonymous, I come up with another one. Secondly, if you want to remain anonymous, don't volunteer. Because as soon as you volunteer, you step away from the crowd. As soon as you volunteer, you step away from a facelessness. As soon as you volunteer, someone is going to take interest in you. 
Someone is going to now know you. They're going to get to know your name because they want to partner with you. They want to learn from you and they want to join in partnership with you. They want to pray with you. They want to work together with you. They want to do life together with you. There's going to be somebody come in and so if you want to remain anonymous, do not volunteer. Do not volunteer because they will get to know your name. If you want to remain anonymous, do not join a group. Don't join a group. So don't join helping in assisting youth. Don't join in helping assisting kids. Don't join in helping assisting in adults, women's ministry, men's ministry. Don't help in, in any area. Don't help in a support group. Don't come on a group that meets together for prayer. Don't come on those groups because as you do, because names are exchanged, people are going to see your face. They're going to recognize you. You're going to, they're going to ask questions. They're going to start to get to know you. They're going to want to pray for you. They're going to want to journey with you. They're going to want to find out how, it, how it's going. They're going to want to help you when you need help. And if you've got to remain anonymous, you can't join a group. Joining groups really mess that up if you want to remain anonymous. And lastly, if you want to remain anonymous, don't join in prayer times. Because in prayer times, somebody's going to ask you, what can I pray for you about? And so don't join in prayer times because you got to keep away from that because now you've got to share something. You don't want to share something because if you share something, then that person's liable to actually remember that and they probably are going to come back and ask you, how's it going? And if the prayer's been answered and now they're into your life and if you want to remain anonymous, you've got to stop being a part of prayer. Now, I don't know if anybody's ever read the old book by C.S. Lewis, Screw Tape Letters. I just did kind of a screw tape letter. I kind of took perspective from the other side. Because here's the thing, all of us, every single human on this earth, over 7 billion, the Bible says we were all created, we were all born with eternity in our hearts. Unique to us from every other species on this earth, we, there's a sense that something bigger matters. It's called, the Bible says, eternity's on our heart. And inerrant in all of us, that God has given all of us because we were created in his image and his likeness is that we do matter in life. That when life is over, we made a difference. Whether we made a difference and life is over as a child, as a teenager, as a young adult, or as an elderly person. Whenever that is, we made a difference. And to make a difference, iron sharpens iron, our topic. To make a difference, we can't remain anonymous. We need to get involved. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? You know, it comes down to some basic practices, and I was thinking about this, so I got my sticky <laughs> pads out this week. And I began to think, there's a lot in this world that is temporary. So if I'm going to, if eternity is placed in my heart, then what's not eternal? Temporary. What's, what's temporary? Began to determine, because temporary is going to make a difference. So what is temporary? So I'm going to suggest what is temporary um, well, I've already got some stickies from the first service. Here we go. Uh, temporary is, um, I got the sticky on the wrong side. Temporary, keyboard's temporary, okay? Um, I can put temporary over here to, uh, I can put it to guitar. I love guitars, but they're, they're, nah, they're temporary. Um, you know, temporary, this building, this building's temporary, so I'm going to stick it here. Brick and mortar is temporary. Uh, we could just keep going. Your car out there is temporary. The clothes on you is temporary. Your job is temporary. Your home is temporary. Your mortgage, your bank account is all temporary. Your savings, your retirement savings is temporary. All of it's temporary. 
Okay. So then, what's eternal? Now, this actually is not a hypothetical question. What is eternal? Talk to me. What's eternal? People. Pastor Brett's eternal. He'll forever exist. Christus, eternal. Valentine's eternal. You're eternal, every one of you. Forever. Eternal. And it's the only thing in this globe that's eternal. This globe is not eternal. The sun, solar system, it's not eternal. But people are. So, I told Laura, I'll give this to you. So, she's going to stick this to you. COVID free. Eternal. Eternal. Here's, here's how we need to close. Because this is our last time together for a few weeks, right? Why don't I hit this thing? Let's figure out what's temporary and let's figure out what's eternal. Because based on that, make your life count. Let's do life together and make it count for what's eternal. Refuse to remain anonymous. Refuse to be a prisoner to appetites. Be men and women of eternalness. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.